From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, indeed, and happy Thursday. Good afternoon. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill. A big show ahead with lots of timely news. Like this one, once again, another level of government thinks it's got a great idea, the answer, the solution to curbing tobacco addiction. Yeah, this time it's our provincial government, and this time it's a ban on selling nicotine pouches in corner stores. Really? Well, one group is calling BS on this one. We're going to talk about that coming up this hour. After 1 o'clock, it's going to be time to get spaced out. Let's talk about what's up on Mars. Yeah, Dr. Tanya Harrison. She's worked with NASA looking at Mars. She's going to be joining us ahead of a talk coming up at SFU. And later in the show, a chance to win tickets. Everybody likes free stuff. And, well, this is a chance to get free tickets to see Quiet Riot. But you have to know a little bit about metal. A very simple, I would say simple, question is going to be asked. And if you nail it, you get the tickets. Just that simple. Clearing the throat. But first, yeah, it is a pilot project as a means you won't be able to really get a chance to drive your car right through Water Street in Gastown this summer. You see, Vancouver has approved a plan that will see a pedestrian zone coming to a key stretch of road. It is a pilot project, a term that Tim French, our producer, hates. But it is a pilot project that's going to actually see if... uh, You know, this is something that can work if it's something that's going to be desirable for Gastown, maybe other neighborhoods as well. It's fantastic news for tourism, I would argue. What about for drivers? Well, let's bring in Wally Wargley. He is the executive director of the Gastown Business Improvement Society. Wally, thanks so much for joining us and good afternoon. Good afternoon, Bruce. Thank you for having me on today. You know, I have mentioned this before, Wally, uh, although I am... A diehard driver, um, uh, an admitted driver in a world of uh, so many people that really would like us out of cars. I'm one that stays in the car. But that being said, I do see opportunities. And one of them, I pointed this out, is Gastown is an incredible stretch. And what if they had closed that area in the summertime? I've been saying this for years. Maybe it's a uh, high time to do it. What do you think? Well, your wish just came true, Bruce, so we're going to find out. Yes, I think, uh, to be frank, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, based off of work that we've done when we've closed streets down before, you know, we've had Meet Me in Gastown events the last two years. But the first year, we didn't close down Water Street, and we actually saw uh, an increase in sales for some of our businesses. Last year, we did shut down Water Street, and we actually saw businesses decrease uh, in sales, some of them. Um, we've also talked with other BIAs uh, across North America, San Diego, and Montreal. And what they tell us is, yes, you can get more folks to come down, but it doesn't necessarily translate into more money into your members' pockets. And specifically, sometimes your hospitality folks do better, and some of the retail uh, retail members will suffer. So, you know, we're concerned about that, right? I think that one thing, we, we certainly support the pilot. We support new ideas. Um, we are certainly a tourist-centric spot, and I think some of the counselors mentioned yesterday that 
you know, when they're traveling, people do look for areas like this without cars to, to go visit. So, uh, you know, we're going to learn by fire. But that part is the part that makes us as a business community a little bit nervous um, because we have real people, real businesses um, potentially at risk here. Yeah, pluses and minuses, of course. But let's talk a little bit about the pluses. And when yeah. doing that, Wally, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, the word that comes to my mind is vibe. I've been to many cities around the world where, you know, they've got an area that is closed off and it's right in the heart of the tourist area. And if you get that on a beautiful, hot summer day and you're able to cross the street and just kind of feel like you're part of something and you're not worried about cars... It really is quite magical, and and I think Gastown could be that. For sure. No, I I think you're absolutely right, and and that is what we are hoping for. Uh, We are hoping that the city does a great job in identifying areas that we can have uh, interesting furniture, and we are certainly uh, very active in the activations that we put on uh, throughout the year without this in place. And then uh, with the closure, you know, we will open that up to uh, additional ideas but the, the, the main thing that we are always trying to get to is, yes, all of that is fantastic. But today, right now, as we talk, the Gastown district is a very vibrant, thriving district that really pulled itself through COVID in, in a very positive way, better than some of the other neighborhoods that were equally impacted. And we are nervous about the uh, right now with some of our folks kind of struggling to get out of this you know, post-pandemic world. You know, will this be the thing that puts puts them uh, over the, the over the edge? And that's the thing we're going to watch for and, and do everything we can and make sure that does not happen. OK, Wally, let's talk about the elephant in the room. And that uh, is some of the crime problem or problems with various people coming into the area and really not being I hate to use the word desirable because that stigmatizes them, of course. But there is a problem with some of the confrontations, and we've seen this in the past, where you have people coming in and uh, not really interfacing with tourists or anybody else or businesses in the way that you really would like to see. What is going to happen, do you think, when we close off this area? Is it going to get better or worse or no impact? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. And and the one that, that I think about is the perception of safety. Um, and you kind of mentioned it, Bruce, you're someone who likes to you know, drive in a car. And, and one of the points that we try to make to the city is uh, there is a real uh, perception of safety problem that we had early after the, the COVID pandemic in Gastown. And over the past year, we've kind of erased some of that because there's just more vibrancy on the street, uh, people walking on the street, cars and buses and bikes, everything going down Water Street. But when you stop that, uh, it then has less eyes on the street. So I think the main thing that we're concerned about is, well, are we going to lose some of that perception of safety through this program? And this pilot, and and if we do that, that's the part that's going to trouble us because, like I said, we work so hard to kind of erase that. Now, I hope that does not happen. I hope that um, you know the vibrancy is, is even more profound because we have more people coming down because the you know the street is closed. But that'll be something that we're going to watch for sure. Many of us are familiar with the Granville Mall, is the term I used to use. I guess now Granville Entertainment District, where there is not really or hasn't been traditionally a full closure because buses are still able to go on it. But are there any lessons to be learned from that when you start thinking about Gastown? 
Definitely. And it's certainly one of the things that we have brought up with the city and in our conversations with them is what lessons can be learned, because certainly that is a a failed um, project. That did not help the vibrancy of that area. The other thing we're asking for, um, and we're about to bring on a a consultant ourselves who've actually looked at these types of closures in cities worldwide. And not that there is an exact formula, but there are some mechanisms that you can take a look at that can define um, success more than failure because there are certain things that are set up for some neighborhoods for these types of um, pilots or these types of closures to be successful. So those are the things we're going to have to take a look at and, and lessons learned from them and ensure that we don't repeat those mistakes, both from the, the Granville Mall area, but also you know, worldwide as well. We're talking with Wally Wargley. He's the executive director of the Gastown Business Improvement Society. This in light of Water Street uh, becoming a pedestrian zone going into Gastown in July and August as part of a test to see if it's going to be something that can go forward. And during that test, uh, we know that there will be more public seating in the area around the steam clock. There will be more expanded patios and merchant displays. What are you hearing from the business community, Wally? Well, I think some of them are excited and and want to give this a a shot uh, in the, the question that we still have, though, that has to be made here, not question, but decision needs to be made is really a provincial one in how we can get those folks to expand their patios. You, you have to be able to move seats or actually add seats in order for that to have a, a positive economic impact. The other question is, who's going to provide that seating? Like, this is just a pilot. We, you know, is the city going to be investing in this furniture so that we can then provide that to our members? So there's, there's some questions that we have to be answered, and, and if they're answered in the right way, then yes, I think that's a positive. In talking to the retailers, that's a little bit more challenging because they are concerned about, well, it's not that easy to take from your brick and mortar store and set up outside as well, right? You need more employees, you need um, tents, you need display mechanisms. So I think there is some, you know, uh, apprehension, but maybe optimism. So it's a a mixed bag. And we're going to have to kind of work through some of those issues. And I'll tell you what, I'll be very disappointed if we can't, some of the things we've been asking the city to do with the province, we can't get some of those things done, then I'll be concerned about the success of us. Ah, well, uh, that's a good point. And it remains to be seen. I guess we'll examine some of the results of what we do observe when it comes around to the fall. Wally Wargley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bruce. Have a great day. That's Wally Wargley, Executive Director of the Gastown Business Improvement Society. We're talking about the move to close off Water Street this summer for a test project, not a pilot project, test project, uh, to actually see if it's going to work, if it's something that the pluses outweigh the minuses in that tourist-rich area, potentially even better area of Gastown along Water Street around the Steam Clock area. What do you think? Is it going to work? Is it something you want to see? Is it something you'd like to see expanded in our city? These areas where we have street closures permanently. Give us a call, 604-280-9898. Your calls when we come back. Great to be with you this afternoon. Bruce Claggett in for Jill. And yeah, what about Mars? You know, we've had a long fascination with the red planet. 
I think it may go back to even before 1938, but back in 38, remember, CBS radio broadcast, the infamous War of the Worlds. Also, Mars has been talked about in fiction. There's Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. In film, a couple of films that come to mind, Mission to Mars, The Red Planet. But what about IRL in real life? We've been learning a lot more about Mars with recent discoveries. New photographs that are exciting, with new technologies allowing that, and new theories, including even one that says there is or was a young ocean on Mars. So where do we stand now? Well, Dr. Tanya Harrison is one of the leading experts on Mars. Not that she's on Mars, she's with us this afternoon, but she is an expert about Mars, and she is a co-founder and CEO of the Earth and Planetary Institute of Canada. Good afternoon, Doctor. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've worked on so many different missions and, uh, of course, unmanned missions to Mars. Uh, But you have this fascination. You're going to be coming to SFU, giving a a talk tomorrow. But what is it that uh, has us, as just people, the uninitiated, so glued to learning about the Red Planet? I think it's a lot of what you've mentioned. Science fiction has been so wrapped up around this idea for well over 100 years now that Mars has or had alien life on it. And so as one of the easiest places for us to get to in the solar system to try to answer that fundamental question of whether or not humans are alone in the universe in terms of of life, it's right there. And so trying to answer that with all these missions we've been sending and looking at it through telescopes for decades before that, you know, we still haven't definitively answered that question yet. And so we, we just keep trying. And I think that's really what has held everyone's attention for so long. And we're learning so much more about Mars. And I guess you have to attribute that to better computing power, better lenses and cameras for sure. But what is it that enables us to know more today about Mars than we've ever known in the past? It's really building up a lot on the data that we've collected in the past and then knowing the right questions to answer now. So with early missions, we're basically just you know taking a bunch of pictures and trying to get an idea of the lay of the land. But once we started to see things like oh, there might be shorelines of an ancient ocean. We see ancient riverbeds carved all over the surface. We see layered mountains. What what do we need to send there to figure out what those layers are made out of? And so we get better at asking the questions we need to ask to answer what Mars was like before and if it had life or not. Um, and then we get better at designing the instruments to actually answer those questions. So we've been refining over the past uh, almost 25 years now, the, the questions we've asked for Mars. So, you know, we started with this idea of follow the water. So going to places where it looked like from orbit, there might've been water on the surface in the past. And so we sent rovers to the surface, like Spirit and Opportunity, to confirm that these places had water. And we did that on the ground. And so then we refined that a little bit more to, well, let's look for signs of habitability. So when that water was there, were the conditions right for life to thrive, at least life as we know it. And then when we were able to confirm that was true with the latest rover, Perseverance, we then honed that question to, was there ever ancient life on Mars? And so we send different equipment each time to try to answer those questions. 
There are many people listening to this right now that are going to be asking themselves this question and hoping that you can answer it because you've got all the research. But very top level going down from uh, 35,000 kilometers up looking at this, wondering the question of, do you believe that there is life as we know it on Mars or was? I personally don't think there's any life there today. Maybe there are some microbes that have managed to take hold, you know, deep underground somewhere where maybe there's just enough heat to have a little bit of liquid water for them to to survive. But I think it's probably unlikely. In terms of Mars of the past, though, I think that's much more likely. We know that Mars was warm and wet and had all the right chemicals at the same point in the history of the solar system that life arose on Earth. So if you had these two planets that were right next door to each other and they both had conditions for life to thrive, you know, it seems like it would make sense that you would have life on both of them. But if something special happened here that didn't happen on Mars, so we got life and they didn't, that's an interesting question too. You know, what was that special thing here that doesn't seem necessarily to have happened somewhere else, even if the other conditions were ripe for it to happen? And I think you're touching on this a bit, but when we examine and we learn about another planet like Mars, what does it tell us about Earth? It's really helping us put Earth in the context of the rest of the universe. It might seem a little bit odd at first. You know, a lot of people ask, why do we spend all this money in space? But really, everything we're doing is to understand, you know, what what could happen to the Earth as our planet evolves. You know, if Mars used to be really Earth-like and now it's this cold polar desert, what happened to cause that and might that happen here? Um, and of course, around the questions of life, you know, we want to answer that fundamental question of whether or not we're alone. And so understanding what happened to life on Mars if it was ever there or why life never arose if it wasn't there helps us try to understand, okay, what do we need to be investigating here on Earth to be able to find out why there's life pretty much everywhere you look here, but we're not finding that anywhere else in the universe so far. We're talking with Dr. Tanya Harrison. She is the co-founder and CEO of the Earth and Planetary Institute of Canada. She's also worked with NASA on various research projects involving Mars. And we're talking about Mars and the red planet. Doctor, I've got to ask you also this question. When you think about Mars and you've been into it for so many years, but do you still have those moments where you think, Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And if so, tell me about those moments. I feel like you you never really get over those. Like, the novelty doesn't wear off. Uh, I think even after I'd been working in mission operations for multiple years, I was still excited to come into the office every day and look at the images that we've been taking from Mars because you never knew what you were going to see. Uh, you know, Mars has weather. Mars has new impact craters forming all the time. It has new landslides every once in a while. So it's, it's a changing place. It's a breathing planet. And you might catch some of those changes, which was always exciting. Um, I think in terms of wonder, I, I think just knowing that in some of those cases, when you're, you're actually working in operations for these missions, since I worked on cameras, that's kind of my specialty. A lot of the time, you might be the first human on the entire planet to look at that piece of Mars. And so for a few minutes, you have this really beautiful 
intimate relationship with this piece of another planet that no one else has gotten to see yet. And there's something so magical about that experience that is almost hard to describe, but I, I feel so incredibly lucky to have been able to, to do that in my career for so long. You know a secret. It's almost like you've got a story to tell based on what you've seen. I know that feeling. It's a feeling you have as a journalist at times. Oh, beautiful. When you get that feeling and you do know something, you've seen something, do you have colleagues around the world that you consult with? What are your first steps? Yeah, I'd say the first thing you tend to do is, you know, depending on what you're looking at, you think of who are the experts in this thing that might be interested in knowing what you've spotted or, you know, using it as a sense check to be like, hey, I think I found, you know, evidence of insert mineral here. Um, Could you take a look at the data and kind of confirm what you think I'm looking at? So a lot of this stuff is not done in a vacuum, no pun intended when it comes to space. Um, This is done definitely as like a huge team effort of scientists literally all around the world that work together to analyze this data and then use that in decision-making for things like, well, what data do we want to collect tomorrow or next month or with the next rover that we're going to send to build on what we've discovered so far? Paul Sykes' lecture tomorrow at SFU has Dr. Tanya Harrison talking about what's up on Mars. Yeah, that's tomorrow, February 9th, and tickets are available through Eventbrite. They're absolutely free. But we also have the luxury of having Dr. Harrison with us to talk about and answer some of those questions that you have. And we've also had some submissions of questions, one of them from one of the callers. And uh, Tanya Harrison, the caller is asking about the poles on Mars. And uh, when are they coming back? Uh, So Mars has two polar caps, um, very similar to the Earth, except one is made of water ice. And the other is made of carbon dioxide ice, which you might know more colloquially as dry ice. Um, They're still there. There are permanent parts of them that don't seem to change year after year. But then there's pieces that we call the seasonal polar cap. And those grow and shrink uh, as you go from like winter into springtime, they will get smaller. And then as you go from like fall into winter, they'll get larger again. Um, So that that kind of ties into what I was saying before about Mars being this living, breathing planet. Um, You don't really get that when you just look at a single image of it. But over time, those polar caps are growing and shrinking over the course of the seasons. You talked a little bit about following the uh, examples or traces of what could have been water or paths of water. But we got another question from a caller wanting to know if it is possible that there could be life that does not require oxygen carbon dioxide or water in order to survive? Potentially, yes. I mean, we're very biased in what we know about life because we only have the sample set of things that survive in the conditions that we know on Earth. And there are things that survive here in environments without oxygen. You have things that survive in environments with very, very little water, but usually you require some amount of it as far as we can tell. But there could be some type of life out there that we just don't know about because it is something that is so exotic it wouldn't exist here on the Earth. Where do we go from here in terms of research? What are the questions that are on your mind that we need to answer? I mean, really trying to answer this question about life on Mars, I think, is this the big thing that's hanging over all of our heads. 
And so to do that, the rover, the newest rover on Mars, Perseverance, is collecting these little sample tubes that a future mission, probably around 2030, is going to go and collect and then bring back to Earth so we can analyze them in labs here with equipment that we just can't shrink down to the size of a rover or equipment that requires you know, chemicals that we wouldn't be able to send to Mars. There's just some things that are too complex to do on something the size of a golf cart. Um, so being able to analyze those samples in labs here, we'll be able to do things like sequence DNA if it's in the samples. And that's really what we need to definitively say this was life or not. But the caveat there is these are samples from one place on Mars that, it, that are rocks that have been sitting at the surface for you know, three and a half billion years being baked in radiation in a very dry environment. And so just because we, it, maybe if we don't find life in these samples, it doesn't mean there was never life on Mars. It just means those samples didn't manage to capture it. I think to really answer that question, we're going to have to send humans and a lot more complex lab equipment and start drilling really deep cores, kind of like we do on the earth when we drill into places like the ice cap in Greenland to look at the climate history or mud cores in the bottoms of lakes to see how those lakes have evolved over time. Those can be meters to kilometers in length. And I think that's really how deep we're going to have to get on Mars to try to definitively answer that question about life. Okay, which begs the obvious question, the second question, which has been one around for years. How close are we to sending a person to Mars or a team to Mars? SpaceX wants to send humans to Mars like within the next few years. I think that's probably unrealistic, but the fact that they put a timeline on it that is something tangible, like it doesn't feel like it's so far in the future that you couldn't be a part of it, um, I think might help drive the goal of getting people there more quickly. NASA's being a little bit more conservative. They're aiming more toward like 2040 to send humans. Um, and they might send humans kind of like they do with Apollo, where they sent humans around the moon before they landed them on the moon. Um, I would hope we don't do that just because it takes so long to get to Mars compared to the moon, uh, eight months instead of a few days that if they're going all that way, you might as well let them land on the surface. Let me so, put you on the spot then. With that, uh, would you sign up for a mission? <laughs> I think idealistically, yes, because I would love to go and like walk up to one of the rovers on the surface and see it there. But I also really hate flying. Uh, <laughs> like I take the train everywhere. So I think I might just be stuck in mission control here on Earth, helping other people go to Mars. Well, if you hate flying, boy, that's got to be the ultimate uh, test. But thanks so much for uh, joining us and a fascinating topic. Of course, uh, there are tickets available on Eventbrite still for your talk tomorrow at SFU, the Paul Sykes Lecture. Dr. Tanya Harrison, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Nice to be with you. Bruce Clankett in for Jill this afternoon. She's back tomorrow. Hey, here's one. Well, Google has now launched its AI chatbot Gemini in our country. This after a big delay that was tied to the company's standoff, the ugly standoff with Ottawa over online news. And well, today the search giant expanded the rollout of Gemini. That's the former bard. 
to Canadians after excluding all of us from his chatbot's uh, biggest expansion to more than 230 countries and more than 40 languages. That was back in July. But now Canadians can access Gemini in both English and French. To talk about what this means and whether it is the big excitement it's made out to be, let's bring in our digital lifestyle expert, Andy uh, Brar. Andy, so good to have you with us this afternoon. Uh, good news? Is this uh, the news you were hoping for all along? Well, Bruce, you know, finally, I don't have to use a VPN to, to access <laughs> Google's, uh, you know, AI. Uh, and basically, essentially, this is their rival to ChatGPT. Um, when ChatGPT came out, Bruce, it kind of caught Google off guard. Uh, they did not see that coming. And that at the time, ChatGPT was the fastest, you know, downloaded or used program ever. It was like 100 million users in like a, in the span of a month or two. So they came out with Google Bard. That was their, you know, answer to ChatGPT. But it was not very good. It did not work very good. It wasn't available in Canada that's why I was saying I was using a VPN to try it out, to compare it to ChatGPT. But it looks like they did a big rebranding. They, they got rid of BARD. They're going to you know rebrand their AI chatbot, Gemini, across the world. And like you mentioned, finally, Canadians can finally try this out without having to use a VPN to, to try that chatbot. Okay, so besides the branding, the new name, because the old one kind of stunk and it was uh, too little too late, now that we have this new product from uh, Google now available to us, what is it going to do or what are the expectations that it can do that ChatGPT can't? Essentially, it can do the same stuff, except with ChatGPT, when it first came out, you know, everybody was using it and playing around with it. Then they came out with ChatGPT4. That's a subscription-based ChatGPT, which is much more intelligent than ChatGPT3, but you're going to have to pay for it. Now, from what I can tell with Gemini in Canada is that unlike ChatGPT3, which was using data from about 2001, 2021, um, this one actually can use real-time data. Like things are changing on the internet all the time. And so just for an example, today, Gemini asked what was going on in the Supreme Court in the U.S. And it kind of told me all the different cases that it was looking at, but it didn't tell me about that Trump case. So then I, I, I digged in and asked it to tell me more about Trump, but then it didn't want to get into the political aspect. So I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's kind of holding back some information. But after work, some workarounds, I was able to get it to talk about Donald Trump. So it, it, it's more current in, in terms of the data that it's using. But again, this free version that's available in Canada, they still have a, a, their own version, paid version that they're also launching. That's going to cost, I believe, $27 a month Canadian if you want that Google AI, Google One AI premium plan. And that's going to give you their answer to ChatGPT4. But the one that you can use for free, anybody can use it right now in Canada. You know, it kind of reminds me of Microsoft Word. And a lot of people yeah. uh, signed up for that, of course. And then it uh, became subscription-based and perhaps not cheap, but everybody knew it. And then Google came along and what did it do, Andy? Well, they came out with their cloud version of Google Docs. <laughs> right. And and, and really disrupted, you know, Microsoft's business there. But what Microsoft realized back then, and this was a while ago now, is that people that would buy the Microsoft Office suite, 
They would never upgrade it. They would keep that computer and they would just keep using it. Then they decided, you know what? We're going to make software as a subscription service. So now you have to pay either monthly or annually. And everybody did that. Adobe did that with their creative cloud suite of like Adobe Premiere and Photoshop. Now you have to pay that as a subscription. And now what we're seeing with AI is AI as a subscription service. So if you have the money, you're going to have the most powerful AI available But if you don't have the money, you can still use their free version because what you're essentially doing by using that free version is helping them train that AI and to get it better. And that's the issue, Bruce, that Google has with ChatGPT. Even though Google says it's smarter, it's more intelligent, their AI is more powerful than ChatGPT, the user base, people are using ChatGPT on a, on a you know, daily basis, but they're not using it as much as Google Bard. So what they're going to do is a big PR blitz to try to migrate people to start ch- ch- uh, using Gemini, because even if you're not paying for that subscription service, they want you to use it because it's only going to make their AI smarter in the future. Okay, I'm going to take a step back and see if I've got this right. To me, it sounds like, Andy, and correct me if I'm wrong and fill in the gaps where I don't understand, but it sounds like there are two things that make AI strong, whether it's Google or ChatGPT. One is the existing data that it has to draw upon, and the other is the technology and how it works. Yes. Okay, so obviously we've got uh, ChatGPT that's got all the data in the world but I guess Google has to prove in order for it to compete, it's got to get up to speed from what you're saying with all that data. And that's why it's offering it free, perhaps. But it's also saying that its technology is better, if I understand. Yes. Now, on the data part, you have to, we're, we're talking about Google here, Bruce. They have a huge treasure drove of, of data to, to go by because of Google search. We all use it. Think about this. Bruce, when we talk about search, we just say, oh, I'm going to Google that. You know, we just automatically thought that Google was the de facto search engine. But, you know, there is Microsoft Bing and Microsoft, which is an investor in OpenAI, ChatGPT. They have now utilized the ChatGPT inside their search engine to try to lure people away from Google and to use their Bing uh, search engine. Whereas now with ChatGPT, that's really kind of the de facto AI chatbot that everybody knows about. But now Google is trying to become, so they're kind of doing a, a, a reversal where Microsoft's trying to be like Google and Google is trying to be like Microsoft in, in the same way and try to you know, lure people away into their chatbot. So we have a chatbot arms race right now. They want us to use it, whether it's the paid version or the free version. But Google with their deep mind, what they can do is they can now create their own image generator. So text to image generator. And I was playing around with it earlier today. I was like, you know, show me a picture of an iPhone in water and Google would just create this image like that. But it could also reverse it. You could send it an image. And I did it today. I sent a picture of an empty apartment building. And I said, write a description for this if I was going to sell this apartment building. And it could understand that it had sliding doors. It had, you know, lots of natural light and a light floor. But then it started making stuff up, Bruce. It was like, oh, yeah, and it has stainless steel uh, appliances, which it didn't. I didn't even show a picture of the kitchen. So it's not perfect. But once you start paying for it, it's going to get much better. And that's what worries me because you're going to have the haves and the haves nots based upon if you can afford it. Imagine going to university and having Google, this Google One AI premium plan. And uh, your next classmate doesn't have it. 
who do you think has an advantage uh, when it comes to writing papers or doing research? It's the one that can afford that subscription service. Well, this is something faculties are going to have to address as faculty uh, policies when it comes to AI, period. And if they're not doing that right now, they better get on board. But um, the other thing I'm seeing is there's a lot of software out there and has been for years that attempted to do what uh, AI can do now. Do you see some of these companies or the existing software that we're all familiar with uh, disappearing because of AI, because of uh, what Google's doing? I think what you're going to see, Bruce, is they're going to try to incorporate AI into their software. And you're Adobe, where you can just generate images you know, with Photoshop. You don't even have to take the picture. You can just ask it to make a picture, and then you can edit it from there. So it's really going to be like AI is in everything, pretty much any tech startup these days. And I go to some in Vancouver to these startup uh, uh, tech uh, showcases, and they all have AI. They're like, you know, that, that's the big uh, buzzword in tech right now. So it's like if you don't have – you know, I was at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, and they pretty much said, if you don't have AI in your product, don't even bother coming. And that's what we saw, AI toothbrushes, you know, that would study the way that you're, you're uh, brushing your teeth and then giving you feedback based upon that to how you can brush your teeth better. That's the kind of world that we're living in. Products and even software are going to have AI embedded into it. Some will make sense, Bruce. Some probably don't make sense, but that's the big buzzword in technology today. With these two competing companies, Alphabet for Google and Microsoft, uh, both of them are, well, reporting healthy increases in their earnings. Do you think that AI is going to be the major component of their business going forward? I, I do. I do. I think because we have just so much information, it's trying to make sense of that information. And that's why they're doing huge investments into data centers, into supercomputers to be able to compete with each other. But with these investments, they got to make money. And that's the problem with, I find, Bruce, with AI. It's all privatized. What we don't have and what I think society needs is we need like the Wikipedia version of an AI chatbot that's not, it's open source. It's not a private company that's trying to make a profit, but it would be good for humanity to have some type of open source AI, similar to what we have with Wikipedia, where if you wanted information, you can go to Wikipedia. But if you wanted a, a smart AI chatbot, you know, you, we would have an alternative rather than the ones from these private companies that are there to make money for their shareholders. Yeah, it's Bruce in for Jill. And well, Google has launched AI chatbot Gemini in our country after a long delay. It rolled out to, in July to most countries around the world. But of course, we had that fight with Ottawa, or Google certainly did, and that uh, delayed the fight. So now there is competition with Microsoft's chat GPT. To talk about this, uh, we've had Andy, AndyMedia.com's Andy Brar. Andy, uh, when we talk about AI, and now that we've got competition, we've got more access to it, in terms of winners and losers, overall, in terms of those occupations, where do we stand? Who are the losers, do you think? Well, right now, Bruce, I'd say it'd be writers. Writers are the the ones that are really struggling. Uh, I'm a case in point. You know, I write in the in the tech industry, and there are already a lot of different websites are starting to experiment using AI to ge generate content. And essentially, these websites are realizing like we can get AI to do it at you know a fraction of what we would cost a writer. It can be faster. But the big issue that I have with that is the quality of the content. We already saw what happened with Sports Illustrated, where they tried to create fake people 
and then have AI written content. So everything was generated right from the image of the person. It wasn't even a real person. They got caught and now look what happened with Sports Illustrated. And I think other, you know, websites and where, where cost is a big issue, they're looking to cut costs. And what's going to happen is we're going to have the internet filled with really bad content because yeah. uh, it's just AI written. But they're just trying to get the, the eyeballs on the website so that they can get the ad money. And they don't really care about the quality of the content. And that, I think, for writers, definitely, they're the losers with AI. I tend to agree, although I will say this. Uh, I think that the public is going to be smart enough to start to identify what comes from the heart and soul, and writers are going to have a great deal of pride, and they already do, in having things much like a musician or a painter, uh, of having something that's created from somewhere else, not just drawing upon a big database, I would hope. That being said, I will also say that on my substack, at least, or Substacks. I've got two of them, by the way. Uh, I have never used AI. I've written about it, but I've never used AI. So there you go. Um, but there are winners. Let's talk about some of those. I, I think for medical research, that's a big uh, win for AI. Because if you look at how intelligent AI, it can analyze uh, data sets. So imagine if you are you know, a doctor and you are trying to look for a, a, a tumor, just from images or maybe from through x-rays, AI is going to be able to look at an entire catalog of photos and then understand what, what is flagged, essentially. And then a real physician or a doctor or an expert can then look at it. So it kind of narrows it down to just so you can focus your attentions on, on things that have been flagged by the AI. And also um, for discovery of new medication, I think AI is really going to accelerate that. And I think we saw a little bit of that with the vaccine that happened with, during COVID and just the, the sheer time that, that it took to, to make that. It was, it was expedited, and I think AI played a large part, a large part of that. You know, something that, uh, and maybe somebody's asked this question or done some research on it already, I bet they have, but something that pops to my mind is investigators looking into things like homicides uh, and going back over things that are usual patterns. I wonder if AI is going to be an advantage in doing that. Absolutely. Uh, anything that you have a large data set that you need to kind of comb through, AI is going to be able to help that. But Bruce, you know, another loser, I think, uh, I just saw an ad on YouTube earlier uh, this morning, and it was for AI voice actors. And so what this company is trying to say is, oh, if you need a voice actor, well, you don't have to hire one anymore. Just give us the text. And our, our AI voice actors can sound sad. It can enunciate, sound happy. It has more personality. So I I worry about that because what that's about a profession. Singers? I what know about a lot performers? Well, what about exactly. Taylor Swift? Well, that's it. Yeah, we're going to probably have AI artists in the future. We're already seeing artists use AI to generate music. One, you know, it was like they, they just took basically Drake's voice and created a song and people actually liked it. And, you know, people wanted it to see it to have a Grammy, but it wasn't uh, awarded, of course, because it was kind of an AI generated song. But that's where we're headed. And the, the thing about AI that kind of scares me is that if you give it a data set like someone's voice, it can then, you know, create that voice and you can just take any kind of text and have it sound like that person. Scammers are already trying to take yeah. advantage of this to try to scam people. And it, the, the lines are blurry, even on images. It's like, what was AI generated and what was real? And I really feel that, you know, for society, 
we need to have a watermark on any kind of AI generated content because it's getting really hard to say what was AI generated and what is real. And those, and this is right at 2024. Imagine what's going to happen in five years from now, what those images will look like. Wise words, Andy, as always, and it leaves us thinking, appreciate your time. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.